Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Daps, the climate change podcast. of America Adapts. This podcast is about climate change, but more specifically, how America is going to adapt to climate change. We'll talk to scientists, planners, policymakers, or anyone who has interest in adaptation. And we also hope to have a little fun along the way. On today's podcast, we're talking to Nick Fisichelli about national parks, adaptation versus resilience, how one might communicate adaptation, and we're briefly going to talk with Tim Watkins in our Adaptation Roundtable. If you want to learn more about the podcast today, please check out our website, americaadapts.org, or visit the Facebook page, America Adapts. Okay, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome again, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Daps. I'm very excited that our first guest is Dr. Nick Fisichelli, and I am pronouncing his name right, I think. Is that is that right, Nick? You got it, Doug. Okay, excellent. Um, you know, I, I've, I've known Nick for a few years now, and I, I think all this time I probably have said his last name two or three times, and so I don't end up pronouncing it very often. So welcome, Nick. Um, wh- where are you at right now? Just so our listeners can get a sense of where you're at. Yeah. Well, th- thank you for, for having me on, Doug. Well, I am in Maine uh, on the tip of the Scudic Peninsula, so which juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. It's part of Acadia National Park, and I'm at Scudic Institute, which is a nonprofit organization here that focuses on, on research and education for all ages. So just so folks know, Nick and I, well, we used to work together at the National Park Service, and these are some of the things that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about all things climate change, adaptation, um, some of the things going on with the National Park Service. I'd like to talk a bit about scenario planning because Nick is an expert in that area, and I think it's one of those things that people just aren't really quite sure what it means. And so those are some of the things that I want to talk about. But, you know, before we get started, uh, again, a little bit more background with you, Nick. I, I'd like to share some personal info on people, too. And so it's my understanding after talking to one of your colleagues is that you hate flowers and butterflies <laughs> and all that is good with the world. Now, is that an accurate sort of <laughs> assessment of like what this feedback I got from some colleagues? Oh, my. I, I have to wonder who you were talking. <laughs> it's anonymous, you know. But oh, right, right. Well. Yes. Uh, maybe that, that depends on the day. Okay. Uh, I, I would say I'm, I'm very partial to, to plants. So I, I'm, I'm a forest ecologist uh, is my, my background. And uh, so trees especially, are, I have a fondness for trees. Okay. So that might be a generalization, but um, I thought that was pretty striking that butterflies, I mean, who, who, who doesn't like butterflies? But um, you're coming from Colorado and you've moved to Maine and, you know, the more kind of the winter in Maine is going to be pretty harsh, but it sounds like that it might be right up your alley. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the Northeast and uh, so I, I'm looking forward to, to the winters up here. They're, they're not too bad in, in Colorado either, especially if you get up in, into the mountains. It's, you know, it's good to get out and, and enjoy the snow. Well, I'm based here in Washington, D.C., and I tell you what, um, these winters kill me, and people mock me because they think that D.C. has a pretty mild winter. And, you know, when you're originally from Florida, 
DC might as well be the Siberia. I just uh, I can't even imagine what Maine's going to be like. So I'm glad you're going to enjoy it. So you got a, you have a, you have a different baseline there, and so it it just feels a lot worse if you're coming from Florida. Yeah, yeah, and I, you you just never get used to it these six seven month long winters. So um, yeah, well, so Nick, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess a little bit more about your background. So prior to, I mean, you're really new at the Scudic Institute. You've been there for like a month or two, right? That's right. Yes, I just started last month at the institute, and and so I'm the director of the forest ecology program here, which is a a brand new program. And, and we're focused on science, education, and stewardship outreach. And so helping to – trying to, to understand forest dynamics in, in this region. How are these forests changing? What are the important environmental drivers behind those changes? And trying to, to incorporate citizen science uh, in, into that research. So getting, getting folks out there to, to help with documenting changes in, in phenology and forest composition and and uh, educating and school kids uh, and getting them interested and, and excited in science and in conservation. And, and then finally thinking about stewardship outreach. So working with managers, whether they're, they're park managers, managers for local land trusts, others in, in the region to, to think about climate change and, and to adapt to, to changing conditions. So how big is Scudic Institute? I mean, like how many people work there? It's 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 pretty small. It's a small institute. It's um, there's there's a depending on you know certainly there there's some more folks here in the summertime, uh, but about a uh, 15 people. So it's it's a it's a pretty small shop. It's also a a conference center. So there are various conservation groups can can come here and, and other groups to uh, have have staff meetings and and their conferences. So uh, I'm assuming if anyone wants to learn more about it, they can go online. There's a website that they could visit. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Scudicinstitute.org. Uh, and uh, just I'll, I'll spell it out. It's in front of me. S-C-H-O-O-D-I-C. It's a little bit kind of hard to figure Scudic. out. So, Scudic right. Institute. So, yeah, check yes. it out. Um, I, I've, I've dug around on the side a bit, especially when I heard you you got this position. So, again, congratulations on the, on the new role there. So. Thank you. Well, you know, I thought we'd jump right in. You know, the topic of this podcast really is uh, climate change adaptation. And since you are an expert and I want experts coming on to talk about this issue, um, the issue of adaptation is one I think that, you know, we're still figuring out how we're, we're communicating this to the public. And so I, you know, here's the question I want to ask you is that, you know, you, you're married, right? You've been married for a while. Yes. So um, I don't know if you're friendly with your mother-in-law, but like, do you feel like your mother-in-law has any clue what you do for a living? <laughs> no. No, okay. No, I, I don't think so. So if she was at talking to the, some friends and she was describing what her son-in-law does, she, it, she might get, get that you're in the environmental field. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think that might be as far as it goes. Yeah. You know, it, you could probably say that maybe it, you think your wife, she might be able to explain it. I, I would, <laughs> I, I would hope so. I may, I may have to quiz her on that. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's true. Like you said, it, it's hard to explain adaptation. And, and I think we're just figuring out what, what is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? It's you know, rapidly evolving. So it's, we're, we're figuring, figuring it out as we go. 
Yeah, I think part of it is that everyone's sort of coming to terms that, well, not everyone, but climate change is happening. What's it going to mean for the future? And so the idea that you're pivoting to like, okay, now we're going to actually adapt to these changes, you know, that's still, I think we have a long ways to go, especially with the public. So that's Mm -hmm. part of our challenge. I I think so. And and early, you know, early on in, in the response to climate change, it was really focused on mitigation. So reducing greenhouse gases and through through you know uh, lower lower emissions and then also greater uh, sequestration of, of carbon and and that was the focus of the climate change response and adaptation came on sort of a, a little bit later and and at first was a bit of a sort of a dirty word that we, we were giving up on on uh, the environment by adapting to these changes rather than just trying to fight and, and mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions and but there's the, the realization that that change is really sort of baked into the system, that there's a lot of these, these long lag times between when emissions happen and, and when the, the climate system and the earth system responds to them. So so we have to, to continue to to respond to these changes and and recognize that, that climate change is ongoing and that it's not just a, a 2050 or, or 2100 issue, but that that it's, it's happening now. And so we have to be adjusting to the changes as well as as trying to to mitigate uh, future climate change. Well, you know, that, that's that been an interesting part of adaptation. It's a relatively new field. It's even newer than, you know, climate change mitigation. And, you know, when Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, came out, there was all this controversy of, like, when people start talking about adaptation, they're like, you can't talk about that. That means you've given up on, like, mitigating climate change. And I always thought that was a curious thing. It's like, no, that's yes. not what we're saying at all. Right. Exactly. I think, yeah, that's very true. And, and you know, you realize that we need both of these strategies. We need to adjust to ongoing changes and we need to try to, to mitigate uh, future impacts, future changes. And and, and we need both together. Um and, and mitigation, in a lot of ways, is, is I think of it as it's becoming more and more important because the adaptation that we're trying to enact now is not going to be successful in the future under a, a high emissions uh, greenhouse gas scenario, that, that we're only going to be effective at adapting to changes if we can really uh, minimize the amount of climate change through mitigation. Well, we'll get into it a little bit more with some of the scenario planning that I, have, I want to talk about a little bit later. But, you know, I, I, I always struggle with like coming up with a proper analogy of what adaptation planning is because this concept of uncertainty. And so I, I, I thought I came up with a semi-decent one. It's sort of like you're planning to have a dinner party. And it's like you're not quite sure if you're inviting maybe five to ten people over for a nice little dinner party. And so what do you need to do to get ready for that dinner party? Maybe get a little extra food, clean up the house a little bit, but you don't really have to worry about anything. Or are you expecting 500 college students to come to your house? And how would you prepare your house differently than that five to ten person party? And so I kind of like that concept because, you know, there's these extremes and like I think – us involved with the adaptation universe, I think we were sort of not committed to that 500 person party type of thinking yet. So, I mean, what, what do you think? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, you got to think about their dietary restrictions too. And, uh, and if they have to all take their shoes off coming into that right. house, there's, there's a lot of those, those details there. That, that's an interesting analogy. Well, you got your um, grandmother's ashes in the urn. And so <laughs> when the five people come over, you just leave that out. But like right. 500 people come in the door. You might go lock that up, you know. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> well, I mean, uh, but to the point of like, you know, don't you think there? I mean, uh, looking at some of the scenario planning, it's like, it, are, are we really thinking like some of those extreme kind of scenarios? And so, I mean, I I, I want to jump into that in a little bit, but it's just I wanted to start off the kind of thinking of like, what is adaptation planning? So, right, yeah, and you know, there's always those surprises, and and you never know. It's it's hard to recognize some of those beforehand. And, and whether it's going to be that five or that five. And, you know, there, there's certain things you can expect and that we can plan for and other parts that are just going to be some, some surprises that we have to sort of have on the radar, but without knowing for sure how, how many people are going to show up. Right. So I guess, you know, is this a three kegger, um, climate <laughs> change impact or is it just a bottle of wine climate change? Though? Yes. So you have to have a well stocked pantry and, and a really big freezer and a supply of, of uh, beer and wine, apparently. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll need the booze for sure, I think. Um, well, okay. Well, that, that, I struggle with analogies and I think, you know, everyone struggles. Like, what is your adaptation elevator speech as you try to explain this issue to more people? And I, you know, I don't think any of our in-laws or even our parents are going to ever be able to, pure, you know, really figure out what we do. But uh, maybe there'll be a little bit of progress. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, maybe this podcast will help. All right. So you get your mother-in-law to listen to this, please. Yes. yes. If only she knew what a, a, a podcast was. <laughs> maybe when you're <laughs> driving with her in the car, you could just stick it on and she's forced to listen to it. Um, uh so what's her first name? Norma. Norma. Norma, we're counting on you to listen to this, okay? If you end up listening to this, we're putting a plug into you, Norma, so you'll understand what your son-in-law does. He's doing great work. <laughs> um, so, Nick, you know, I want to pivot over to, you know, we know each other from our time together at the National Park Service in the Climate Change Response Program. It's been a few years since I've been in that, and you're more recently removed. And so um, I always thought it was pretty progressive that, you know, the Park Service had such a program, and, you know, for all its warts and, you know, what may you do differently compared to, I think, a lot of federal agencies, they were doing some interesting things. And I'd sort of like to talk about that and kind of get your perspective. And now that you're not working for NPS, not that I'm <laughs> wanting to, to bash the National Park Service, but have a conversation like, you know, what are some of the things that they're doing right? What should they be doing differently? And so that's what I would sort of like to talk about. You, you, you want to give a little bit of background what you did with the Park Service? Sure, sure. So I, I, I uh, like you, worked for the Climate Change Response Program, and, and I was an adaptation ecologist. So essentially helping parks and, and, and the Park Service understand ongoing and future climate change and, and effects to, to management and to resources and thinking about ways to, to adapt to those changes. And you know, we, had, we had the mantra that, that climate change affects all aspects of, of park management, so natural and cultural resource protection, operations and facilities, infrastructure, as well as the visitor use and, and experience. And it's, it's, that makes one of the reasons why climate change is, is, is a challenge is that it's, it's complex and has these, these far-reaching uh, effects on, on all aspects of management. And just so folks kind of have a little bit more context, so the national park system, I think they're up to like what four hundred and ten park units. Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah, four ten or four eleven. One, of, yes. Seems like so. It's, it's a huge number, exactly. And and it and it stretches from from Guam uh, in American Samoa uh, out, out in the the South Pacific to to Hawaii. 
to Alaska, the lower 48, and there are even sites in uh, the Caribbean, in, in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. So it's a huge swath of, of the globe when, it, when you think about it. Um, it crosses the, the equator, so from south of the equator to basically to the Arctic Circle and across something like 11 time zones, I, I believe. And let's not forget to give a plug to cultural resources. You know, people think national parks, they think Yosemite, they think Yellowstone, but, you know, all these cultural resources, then they might just be small parks or they might be battlefields. And so those two are, you know, having to be considered when you think about climate change. And so the Park Service has a yes. huge mandate. And, I mean, you're aware of all that. But yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. There are 411 units. There's all sorts of different types. There are national parks, you know, big national parks in the West with these these large uh, undeveloped wilderness areas. And then you have you have monuments, you have um, seashores, lake shores. Then you have battlefields and historic sites. And there are parks in urban areas that the National Mall. Those are those are National Park Service sites, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Vietnam War Memorial, all, all, all sorts of different sites. So it's it's uh, you know, that that makes it a, a management, a challenge, too, that you're not just dealing with one type of park, but a, a huge variety of parks that, again, uh, like you said, they they are protecting not only our natural heritage, but but our cultural heritage as well. You know, I worked in the D.C. office and we like to joke there was a tiny little like 20 foot by 20 foot piece of grass that technically the National Park Service was in charge of. And so <laughs> we would go spend our time out in the, the, the country's national parks for lunch. And uh, <laughs> so uh, really quickly, do you have a favorite national? Ooh, a favorite one. You know, I I, uh, I think I do. I I would say it's Marsh Billings Rockefeller. Hmm. Which is in in Vermont, and and it's you know it's it's one of these tiny parks. It's about 500 acres, and and no, not very many people have heard of it. And and it's it's a great park because it it has that blend of both natural and, and cultural resources. And and so it's it has uh, the, these beautiful forests, these northern hardwood forests in the park, which are in in one sense a natural resource, but they're also sort of uh, the, really the fundamental cultural resource of the park in that they're one of the the oldest planned and managed reforestation efforts in in the United States. So one of the first efforts at, at really modern silviculture uh, back in the, the mid 1800s. And and so the it was originally owned by by George Perkins Marsh and uh, and and then eventually uh, transferred ownership to, to, to Frederick Billings, to, who really focused on, on the forest there. And he went over to, to France and Germany and, and in the 1800s and, and studied some of the, the at the time, state-of-the-art uh, forest management and silviculture that, that was being developed. And he brought that to, to North America and, and tried to, to uh, try his hand at some sustainable forest management, which was something really new at the time in the in the 1800s. You know, the, we were still sort of cutting our way across the country. It was the era of, of Paul Bunyan, and it seemed like forests were were limitless. And uh, but some realized that that we needed some some smart management of forests. And and so the this park, Marsh Billings Rockefeller, it 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 tells a story of that evolving forest stewardship. 
And so, so to me, it's a great, it's a great place. And, and now today, it's even that continuing to tell the story of evolving forest stewardship because that park is thinking about climate change and how they can adapt their management to changing conditions so that they continue to foster healthy forests in that park into the future and can continue to tell that, that living story of, of forest stewardship in America. Wow. I thought you were going to say something like Yellowstone and we're going to end it there. You have put a lot of thought into your favorite national park. That's a great story. I, I had I'd never even heard of that. You know, that's See? fantastic. So yes. I learned something about a park. You know, when you work at the park service, you only I, – I tried on a regular basis to kind of go through the parks and just learn a little bit. But I probably got to like 111 before I left. And so, yeah, there's a lot of parks there. That's great. There are, Yes. I was just going to say either Rocky Mountain National Park or the Everglades, and right. <laughs> mainly the Everglades because it's got a great story. There's a great book called The Swamp that talks about the development of the Everglades, and like the Everglades kept fighting back against development until like I think it was about the 1930s until the Army Corps finally tamed it. But before then, they just kept. I mean, the the, the area just anytime there was any development, they kept like you know. It, it, I'm not saying they, but the the park itself. You know, it's a great story, and you're like you're rooting for the Everglades until finally they, they lost Army Corps. So gotcha. I have not been there. There are so many parks I, and I, I would like to visit. you got to get one of those those passport books and get, get a stamp at, at each park that you visit. Yeah, I think I've seen like six parks. i got a long <laughs> way to go. <laughs> Um, so, you know, back to the, what the climate change program with the parks. And so like, uh, again, you know, there's all these park systems. And so what you were sort of getting to is that we worked in a service wide program. And what that means is like, we weren't associated with any one park, but we were there as a resource to all these parks. And so each of these parks has a superintendent or most do, and there's actually quite a bit of autonomy with each of the parks. And so each park can kind of approach some of these topics in different ways. And so there's guidance coming from the national office, but it's not like they have to do what you say. And so in some ways, that's a good thing. But in other ways, that's a bad thing, especially if some of the parks that should be doing more on climate change aren't. I mean, what are your thoughts on that kind of like the service wide approach to climate change planning? Right, right. I I, I think that that's true. The the role that, that we played there was really in, in, in a support office. So providing some expertise, uh, scientific expertise, guidance on decision-making approaches. But you know, we weren't in the, the chain of command, so to speak, in, in the park service. So I, I didn't get to tell parks w- what to do. Um, you know, that, that, the, there are the others, others that, that fill that role or, or wear that hat. And as you, as you mentioned, the, there's a lot of uh, autonomy in, uh, among the parks. And so the, some, some like to describe it as sort of a, a bottom-up organization that you have these, these lots of, of these individual parks that, that sort of you know, are, are managing themselves and, and there's not as much directive coming from above. And so for dealing with something like climate change and trying to bring in something that, that's really brand new, that, that parks haven't been engaged in, it's, it's more challenging if there aren't directives from above, from you know, the, the, uh, the director and the regional director and others that, that are sort of forcing parks to immediately uh, change course and, and think about climate change. And, and yet there are really some great managers at parks. And they're the ones who who are recognizing that change is happening. They're seeing uh, effects to resources in their parks. And 
and are recognizing that that some of these changes have to happen. Um, but because it's really happening on a sort of a, a, at the park level, some are much some managers are much more in, engaged than than others in the response already. Yeah, and I you know I I don't think a lot of people appreciate that there's a kind of a tiered level to the parks. You know, you have like the big kids on the block, the LeBron James, and that's like Yosemite <laughs> and Yellowstone and Everglades, and like there's these tier one parks, and so the superintendents are actually quite you know influential, and so even things that are being directed from D.C., you know, it's it's not like you want to counter what the director of the park service is saying but like there's some dynamics there that these big parks have a lot of leeway in what they can do and so i mean it, it could be a challenge yeah a- absolutely and and some have a much like you said they have a much higher profile so what happens in the parks is sometimes is more under the magnifying glass um than a small park i, I mentioned marsh billings rockefeller you, know, you hadn't heard of it before many people <laughs> have not it's it's not quite of the same profile as an acadia or a, a yellow Stone or, or Yosemite. So, oh, I'm sorry. Did, go ahead. No, go go ahead. I was just going to say. So, you know, you worked with the parks on some of these um, planning issues more so than I did. And you know, can you give us an example, like one or two examples of some of the parks that are doing some really cool things out there? Yeah, well, I, I, I mentioned the the Marsh Billings Rockefeller, and the reason I, I the reason I even heard of that park is because that was one of the parks that that. Uh, submitted a request to for some some climate change adaptation assistance and and so that's where we we work with that park to think about their their forest management and and how they they may be able to just to you know, just alter some of their their ongoing management practices the the silvicultural prescriptions that they're applying on the landscape just so that they're that they're fostering tree species that are are adapted to current and, and future conditions uh, and another one and <laughs> I think I, another small park that that probably is is not well known. It's called Knife River Indian Villages, and and this is in central North Dakota. Hmm. And it, it's it's uh, you know, this really fascinating fascinating place tells the the story of the, the Native Americans that that lived in that that region, um, and and the the villages that that they lived in there, right along the the river. And there's so there's a lot of archaeological sites in in this location and uh, it was the the mandan and the hadatsa indians in in this location and so they they live right along this river and and that's where their their villages were and and so now it's a, it's a park with these tremendous archaeological sites within it right along the river and and this is a the knife river is fairly small uh, so it's not it doesn't have a dam on it so it's a free-flowing dynamic river that that's includes erosion of some river banks and sedimentation in, in other areas. And, and so the park is dealing with you know, heavier rainfall events and, and some, some uh, acceleration of, of riverbank erosion that is, uh, that's going to take away some of the, the archaeological resources just through erosion and then a loss in, in flooding events. And, and so the park's trying to, to figure out how to adapt to these changes. And, and, and what's a, a challenge here that the free flowing river is itself a resource and, and value there that you have this dynamic river system and the, the cottonwood forests along the river require that, that dynamic nature of the river in order to, to regenerate and to, to establish cottonwood seedlings on, on new sediments that, that get deposited after floods. And, and so there's a, a sort of a push and pull between 
between cultural resource preservation and uh, fostering just the natural dynamics of, of a river system with this park. And, and so the, the park's really in, in, in the process of figuring out how to really find that, that balance there that they can identify and, and preserve key resources um, both both natural and culture cultural under these the under climate change so do you have a sense if they're able to kind of communicate the broader issue of climate change at the park you know it's a somewhat conservative area at least the areas around it yeah you know that that that's a good question um you know i would say it's still developing there and their their management plan they, they have a, a draft management plan that, that they're putting together so they're they're, they're still working through the process. Okay. And so like you would just help support staff that are drafting up these management plans and such. That's right. It, exactly. Yes. And, and that is an example where, where we, we did do some, some scenario planning with, with that park to think about what, what the future may look like. All right. Well, I learned two new parks today and they're See? doing some great adaptation planning. That's fabulous. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just so used to the bigger parks, which I was going to ask right. my next question. Like, so the Everglades, I have a bias toward the Everglades because I'm from Florida. And so did, did you ever work with Everglades National Park on adaptation planning? I mean, they have a huge staff and some of the folks down there I probably are versed in this, but did you end up working with them at all? I, I, I have not. I, I didn't really get a chance to work with many parks in in, in Florida. Um, uh, so, That's all right. You won't hold it against you. But yeah, you know, for, for a big park, I mean, one example is here at, here at Acadia that, that I had a chance when I still worked with, with MPS to work with Acadia. Uh, and, and I continue to, to work with the managers now on uh, climate adaptation. And you know, this is an example of a park with some some real champions in in the resource management division here that are are forward thinking and and they recognize climate change as an issue and and they're trying to to respond to it and to to try to really take some of these these newly developed adaptation tools uh, for a spin and, and to try to use them to to inform their their planning and management. Well, you know, what I think makes the Everglades so interesting, and, you know, I, I think the previous superintendent there, I think it was Dan Kimball, does that re sound right? Um, I think so. He's, he's recently retired, but, you know, they were talking a lot of really good things about climate change in the Everglades, but to me, like, there, there's this sort of this unspoken thing, and you probably feel the same way about some other parks, is that, you know, if you even look at some of the kind of middle-of-the-road models for sea level rise, that the Everglades is basically going to be an extension of, like, this National Park. It's going to be a, a marine park. And yet, even though Everglades talks a lot about climate change, they just tiptoe around that. And it's, you know, for folks that are in the planning world, it's like, that's almost a sure thing. And so it, it, it's probably really tough for the parks to have those kind of like sober conversations, especially with people visiting the parks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are those are really big challenges, and and a lot of those those low lying parks along the coast. They're, they're, yeah, those are big questions. What what are those areas going to look like in the future, and and what is what's the conservation value of those areas, and 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 how do you deal with those changes, and how how much do you influence the changes and direct the changes or, or try to resist them. Those are those really, really big questions. Those, those big, you know, those are the, that's the big meaty question with, with adaptation is that, that we can't just look to the past 
to guide us in in our management and and you know, that, that idea of using past conditions as, as sort of your your target for for what the the landscape should look like and we you know, we've recognized that that even in the past conditions were, were very dynamic although there was often the thought of sort of a, a dynamism around a, a sort of a stable baseline and and now we recognize that climate change is, is directional change and, and we're seeing just continuous directional change. And so it's hard to know what we're managing for and how do we know if we're being effective or how do we, I shouldn't say we, how do managers know if they're, if they're being effective when, when conditions are changing and, and they can't just base their, their management on, on what was found in, in a park in the past. You know, most of everything you just said made sense to me, most, most of it, um, but <laughs> no, that, Oh, checkmate. But what was occurring to me as you were saying those things, I'm like, check, check, right. And then it's just like, but explaining these sort of concepts to the public and the public has to be part of the process of how are you going to manage these parks? That is a big ask, you know, and I guess part of the, you know, the scenario plan is you're trying to get more people closer to that. But what you just described, all these, these sort of things, it's just that. It, the public doesn't get it. Well, and it, it takes education, and it, it takes some time to to bring folks up to speed on on this. And you know, the the great thing about the past is that you know it, it made the decision for you that using the past as your your sort of blueprint for what you wanted your park to look like was it made all all the decisions for you, and and it was easy to get people on board because it was how it looked in the past. And, you know, regardless of whether or not that was even achievable and, and, and appropriate, but it, it was still something that people could agree on and, and aim towards. And, and also, it, it was the same goal basically across protected areas. And so they all had, had basically the same goal was to sort of preserve the species that were found there in the past and, and the conditions that were found there in the past. And, and now with, with changing conditions, we're recognizing that there is no, no one size fits all, uh, adaptation solution. And, and we can't just use the past, but we have to look at, at each park individually and then even resources within each park individually and areas of within a park individually and think about what what are the desired conditions on on the landscape here what are we going to manage toward and that's just just for managers to think that that's really hard to think about and 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 then you layer on that the the realization that that you need to bring stakeholders into that decision-making process and and that's hard as well and it needs to be a really iterative process of of this sort of co-learning and and co-production of of knowledge and and understanding of the issues and challenges that that we're all facing and and the we're all facing these challenges together in climate change we're all experiencing it and and so i I think in some ways you can use these changing conditions to to bring people together to realize that that we're all going to be working you know working under the, these shifting conditions, some of which we understand a lot. There's also a lot of uncertainty baked in there as well. And that, that we need to, to work together to figure out what, how we want our, our parks to look in, in the future. Well, one of the things I want to talk about today too is, and you are an expert in this area, kind of moving away from parks is like this whole conversation of resilience versus adaptation. <laughs> and let me give a little bit of background and 
why I have such a chip on my shoulder on this is that, you know, the federal government and a lot of even the private sector, they've really embraced that word resilience. It's um and you know, if yes. you start looking at the word, there's many definitions for it, and that's problematic, especially what what are people really thinking resilience means? And I think Europe is really embracing resilience. And I get the knee-jerk embrace of the word. It's just like we have these communities. We want to make them prepared for climate change, mm-hmm. but – it doesn't acknowledge some of these things are out of our control. And, you know, sea level rise is a big one that sort of, I think, you know, challenges the idea of resilience. And, you know, you're, you're seeing like resilience officers all over the country. (laughs) And, and, you know, I'm glad they're investing the money in these things, but I, to me, they need to stick with adaptation and and it's, 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 you know, it's rhetoric. It's, you know, it, and semantics of these words, but I think it sends. They're important. Right. And so I, I want you, and I think you know where I'm going with this, is that you and some colleagues wrote, and I think I've got the title here, a, a paper addressing this issue, is Resilience Maladaptive, question mark, towards an accurate lexicon for climate change adaptation. And you know what? We need to work on that title, but it's a great paper. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great title. Right. Oh, it should just be Resilience versus Adaptation. That, boom, people get it. So. <laughs> But so what were you trying to accomplish with that paper? Next time I'll invite you to be a co-author, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, you won't get invited to any journals if you do that. (laughs) Well, so – I think it's true. Resilience, it's, it's this feel good word. You know, I, I think there must be, I, we could do a study and there must be some endorphins that are released in the brain <laughs> when you, when you say that word. It just sounds, it sounds good. It sounds like this. We, everybody wants to be resilient. We think of Rocky and, and, you know, running up the stairs at the, Philadelphia Museum of Art and you know, getting up after we get knocked down. And so it's it's this feel-good word that policymakers have, have really latched onto. And the challenge with, with adaptation is that we need to be working you know, a- across jurisdictions with with multiple stakeholders and that have that have different backgrounds, people that really generally operate in different circles. And they, we need these people to come together to work on adaptation. And, and they all bring their own you know, ideas and concepts and understandings with them, including of what resilience even means. And, and you know, there's, uh, resilience has many different definitions. There's the old uh, engineering resilience, the ecological resilience, the one that you know, I often think about. It's, it's really the amount of stress or disturbance that an ecosystem can, can endure before shifting to, to another state. And, and then there's the sort of more common lay definition of resilience, which is about getting back up after, after getting knocked down. And then the climate change resilience has, has all sorts of diff- definitions. And, and it's, it's somewhat synonymous with adaptation, but it's, it's you know, somewhat of a squishy definition. And, and people think it's about, oftentimes some stakeholders will think it's about you know, keeping the past, about bouncing back mm-hmm. after a disturbance, after a storm. And, and yet most of the, the resilience definitions are about not just resisting change, but even accommodating and, and directing change, um, especially when you get into some of the, the social ecological system definitions of, of resilience. And, and so it's just important that, that we, we think about uh, the terms that we're using and that we have everybody on board with them and, and, and understand what we're actually talking about. And, and then that you know, climate change in a lot of ways means, means change. It, it means that we can't just keep the past. And so the, using the word resilience, I think, gives some, 
some sort of false messaging there as well, potentially, that that we're going to be able to just, you know, enact some strategies to keep things as they were in the past. And, and that's just not true. Well, you know, I would attend these meetings with all these other government agencies, and then most of them are, weren't as sophisticated, and I think they've gotten better in the last couple of years than the natural resource agencies like, you know, Department of Interior and such. And so resilience, you know, they're going to go back to their agencies and they're getting this message from like the White House that, you know, make your facilities, everything that you do resilient. And I think the nuance of like what is adapting, what is embracing change is completely lost. They're going to be thinking like, OK, I've got to report back to demonstrate that we built this seawall, we built these levees and it's just um, I think they're going to feel a lot of pressure that we've made, we've climate proofed everything. And as you you know, said, that that's not necessarily the best strategy for everything. I look at resilience as just a subset of adaptation planning and, you know, people mm-hmm. are putting it on the same playing field, I think. Right, right. Exactly. And, and, and I think, yeah, we need to be more, more careful with that and acknowledge that, that we're not going to be able to keep everything that, that we had in the past. And, and, and I think the Park Service, there's a lot of good thinking there specifically about that, especially when it comes to, to cultural resources. And a lot of cultural resources in parks, these are, these are, are, are artifacts, paleontological resources or, or, um, historical sites that, that were never designed to last forever. And, and now with climate change, it's accelerating weathering and, and deterioration. So there's a recognition that, that, that we're not just going to be able to preserve everything in place as it was in, in the past. And I think we can learn from that in, in the broader uh, realm of adaptation. Well, it warms my heart to know we're on the same page on that resilience and adaptation issue, you know. <laughs> it seems like we're a losing battle. Resilience is popping up everywhere. It, it is. You, you know, in a, another in, – in, in from more of a, in a global perspective – you know, there are a lot of in, in a lot of developing areas that that the idea of resilience is is actually sort of negative in the sense that that people are trying to improve their livelihoods, improve their societies, uh, improve their towns, and so just bouncing back to previous conditions isn't actually a positive. And and so it's another example where where resilience doesn't really work. Well, I think that whole issue will be playing out over the next five, 10 years, and we're just sort of at the front end of all these discussions. So I guess that's a good thing. Um, so, you know, I wanted to do a little plug on that, but, um, what I, I also want to talk about, this is an area that, you know, you've, you were doing a lot of work in at the National Park Service is scenario planning. And so folks, I don't know if you want to give a little bit better background on it. I mean, I was involved with a little bit of scenario planning when I was at the National Park Service, but it's just, it's a tool that people are using now in adaptation planning. And do you, do you have sort of like a short explanation of what you call scenario planning? Sure. Yes. Um, and, and a little bit of NPS background that it really started around 2007, 2008, just after the that round of the, the IPCC uh, climate change reports came out and the Park Service you know, wanted to start really thinking about climate change. And it's a you know, it's it's a, a, a thorny issue. And, and especially at, at that time, it was something difficult to talk about. And so scenario planning became a one way to just to, to really start grappling with the, the issue of, of climate change and try to foster some discussions about it. And, and really the idea behind climate change or behind scenario planning is, is that there are a lot of critical uncertainties in how the future is going to play out and, and we can't predict all of these factors. And, and so it, rather than, than forecast planning, 
sort of planning for one specific future. With scenario planning, you develop multiple uh, plausible divergent futures and, and, and think about how you would plan and manage under these 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 different uh, futures, and recognizing that there are, that there are critical uncertainties, we'll never be able to to predict in in the near term or, or understand. And so it was really a, a way to get beyond limitations of our abilities to sort of look into the crystal ball and figure out exactly what the future is going to to look like. And, and, and so scenario planning really works well with, with climate change because there are a lot of directional changes that, that we're seeing and, and understand. Temperature, temperatures are warming. That, that's uh, very, very well understood. And all the projections for temperature uh, point in one direction, and that, that's for warming in the future. Uh, whereas, for example, with, with precipitation, it's, it's much more difficult to, to uh, model and, and predict precipitation and precipitation changes in the future. And so depending where you are on the landscape, you know, if you have a, a, whole, a whole suite of, of climate models, some may, some may suggest an increase in precipitation, while others may suggest a, a slight decrease. And, and so there's some, those could be some critical uncertainties that you may need to explore through a tool such as scenario planning to think about, okay, if it's a drier future, what does that mean for my resources? Would I change my, my management from what I do today or under a, a, a much wetter future? What does that mean for my resources? And, and what's effective management look like under that scenario? Well, you know, the workshop that I participated in, the organizers, you know, they're jumping up and down to try to make the point that, you know, these scenarios are not the future. They're just, you know, there's something to think about, you know, and I think that's probably a big challenge as you expand this process to other folks. It's like people Again, this is about dealing with uncertainty, but they want that certainty. It's like, oh, well, this scenario is saying X, Y, Z is going to happen. So they're going back and thinking, well, it's a possibility. And it's, it, you know, the language with these workshops has always been like, no, it's just to try to get you comfortable dealing with right. uncertainty. And so, I mean, that to me, is, I don't know if it's a fault of scenario planning, but you really have to, you know, create that base for people as they start using it. Right. And, and it's a new tool that you have to, un, I shouldn't say it's a new tool, but it's a tool that for a lot of, a lot of folks in conservation it is something that they, they haven't used in the past. And, and so you have to just recognize how to use it and, and also its limitations and, and that, that scenarios themselves aren't, aren't forecasts of the future, but they're, they're just a way to, to explore what the future may look like through some exercises, through planning exercises, and and basically asking what if questions. So what if this future presented itself? How would I respond? What would my my management be under this future? If or what if that future manifest? And and what would my my management be? And and then through looking at say three or four distinct and, and, and divergent futures, you can compare your management actions. Did, did I decide to do the same type of management under all three future scenarios, um, which in, in that case would be sort of a, a robust strategy, something you would do uh, across a, a wide uh, suite of, of futures? Or does your, does your management really uh, vary across those those futures, and if so, what are the important triggers or thresholds that are going to alter your management as as the future plays out? Well, you know, I, I like the idea that its value is just getting people 
comfortable with adaptation planning and the uncertainty because, you know, like a planner or, you know, a conservation person goes to these workshops, they learn this, but then when they go back and talk to their supervisor, you know, let's say it'd be the superintendent or some local government official, and that person is wanting, okay, so tell me, what what is the scenario? All right, so we need to act accordingly. And, you know, the like, no, it's just one scenario. And so these people, I guess, further up the food chain are wanting more concrete information. And I think that's going to be a challenge for the scenario planning approach to like go from people who are directly involved to it to people who actually want to make decisions on regulations and all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. It, it is a challenge because it, it's, you know, it, there's this, this shift from from just that forecast planning of assuming one future and managing towards that to recognizing that there is all this uncertainty. We need to recognize what are the consequential types of uncertainty and, and, and how do we incorporate that into our, our decision making? Um, you know, I, I think one great example of uh, here at Acadia managers went through a scenario planning workshop, uh, last October and, and they then took those scenarios and, and shared them with the, the local community, with the uh, group of, of land trust organizations that, that they work with to say, hey, this is the, you know, this, these are the, the futures that we may be facing together. And, and so it helped to you know, raise the, the climate literacy of, 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 of all these, these, these different groups and, and to get them all on the same page that, you know what, we, there's going to be some major challenges for us in the future. Some of these we can recognize now and, and plan for, and others are, we're going to have to really think hard about um, and, and assess what the future might look like. And, and so the, the scenarios themselves came, became sort of that, that, that boundary object that, that all these different groups got to, to sort of focus on to, to work together and, and understand uh, how the future might unfold. Yeah, and, you know, in the, the spectrum of the scenarios, you know, you could have some that were – you're going to have a 7% increase of, you know, rain events. And, you know, when you talk to someone in charge, they're going to give you a blank stare. They're like, well, okay, is that a bad thing? And so, right. um, it, you know, trying to explain it and make it relevant to policymakers, I mean, that, I think there's still a lot of right. work to be done there. I, I, I think, sure, I, I, absolutely. I think there is. And, and you're right. You know, what what is a 2.3 degrees versus 4.2 degrees? You know, what what's the difference there? I You know, it, it's really hard to understand. So, so you have to put it in, in relevant, you know, in, in, in to make it more relevant. And an example, working with, with uh, managers in, in southwest South Dakota, uh, including Badlands National Park, uh, really translated that in, then into into grassland productivity, which was you know, specifically relevant to to uh, grazing out there. So within the park, bison, and outside the park in the national grassland, there's a lot of cattle grazing. And so instead of just talking about a seven percent change in, in precipitation, for example. You know, we talked about changes in, in grassland productivity, which are actually meaningful to managers on that landscape. Yeah, that makes more sense. You know, I did some scenario planning in Florida. I, I was just remembering that. And sea level rise was one of the major drivers in the scenarios that they came up with. And to me, what I found like, and this is a fault, and I'm hoping this is changing because as the information just becomes more, you know, extreme and all the models are just kind of coming in on the higher end, like with 
with sea level rise, they just play it safe. And I think we talked about, okay, here's a model with 12 inches. Here's a model with 24 inches. Here's a model with 30 inches. And then, you know, you do hear talk of like, no, it's going to be six feet. And so if you're going in there, and I think a lot of scientists really want to play it safe. They don't want to come off as alarmist. And yet the whole scenario planning process is about thinking about even those extreme scenarios. And at least I'm, I'm hoping that's changing. And, you know, that it's happening all, you know, everywhere, local governments, whatever, and maybe that's occurring. But I just found that in those Florida models, it's just like, mm-hmm. that's not helpful. We need to know if something really drastic is going to happen here. And we just weren't going through that process. Yeah, you know, that, that's a tough one when you're dealing with those those additional political and, and, and social hurdles there. And you want it, you know, you want to engage people. And, and, and yet at the same time, you don't want to just just downplay how much sea level could rise. So that, that's tough. That, that's really tough. I mean, there, there's no right answer on exactly what level of, of extreme you should be pushing out there. Um, it's hard to know when you're going to just uh, turn off people from it. But at the same time, you don't want to be to be underestimating the amount of change that that we could be seeing in, in the near future. So that that's a that's a tough one to navigate. Is it the five person dinner party or the five hundred person <laughs> keg party? You know, it's uh, right, right. Think about this all. So, um, you know, Nick, I think you know we're, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I, you know, we should wrap this up. And then, um, I, I think you, we, some of the things that we talked about hopefully get people a bit closer with adaptation planning. You know, it's just um, I'm. Do you have any sort of final words you want to share, like some of the stuff that you do or just like talking about the issue of adaptation? Is it please? Uh, yeah. That, um, I, you know, it's it, I think there's a lot of complexity in climate change and and it's tough to fit things in, in sound bites. And, and that's one of the things that, that we, we struggle with and that climate change often doesn't just manifest as much hotter temperatures, although we recently saw really hot temperatures in, in the desert southwest, but it, it interacts with so many other factors, especially in, in, in uh, ecosystems. Pests and diseases and changes in flooding regimes and storms and uh, interactions among species it, it, it influences all all of those all of those things and so it's it's something that that's broad and, and complicated and and something that we need to just just keep continuing to to work on and 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 as uh, folks like to say that that adaptation it, it's a it's a process it's not a product i think uh, bruce stein from uh the national wildlife federation and, and the one the main lead author on the, the climate smart conservation guide like they like to point that out that, that climate adaptation is is a process not a product we have to be continuously and continually going back and, and thinking about how conditions are changing and, and how we're going to respond to them and and I think we're seeing, even though sometimes it feels like we're not making traction, at least in in the span of days to weeks to, to months, I think when we look back, even just over the last 10 years, we, we've done a lot. And I think we'll, we'll continue to see tremendous progress in, in the future. Well, I'm very interested in communicating adaptation. I think it's just this, you know, emerging issue that the public has no clue what's coming in the pipeline. So, you know, maybe through this podcast, we're going to get all sorts of listeners that aren't just in the adaptation orbit. Uh, that's the goal. But um, I, 
I think it's it's our responsibility to kind of kind of share this. You know, I use this concept of I mean, if you're familiar with the expression "don't jump the shark." Yes, of course. Right. Well, not you know, you'd be surprised. People aren't familiar with it, but it's an old episode of Happy Days with Fonzie. He jumps this pool with a shark in it on water skis, and so afterwards, people are just like, "Why did Fonzie just jump a shark? <laughs> what does it have to do with Happy Days?" And so I like to compare that with like um, adaptation planning in the broader context of conservation planning, just because, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to leave everybody behind, you know, whatever paradigm shifts or other cliches, but it's just, um, we got to be, we got to bring the public along for this. And so, you know, these new things, these new tools, scenario planning, we just vulnerability assessments, we have to find ways to effectively communicate to the public. So it's, it's a work in progress and, and we're, 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 we're working at it all, all the time. And, and, and I think getting better and the, the climate literacy out there has, has improved tremendously, um, both among, you know, uh, among land managers as, as well as the public. And it's going to continue to do so. And, and so we're, we're, we're making improvements there, but hopefully, you know, the, the adaptation show doesn't go downhill after jumping the, the, the shark, but, but that we're, we're getting better and that we're, we're improving. We'll see TV shows, everything. It'll all be adaptation, you know? The... That's, that's right. Well, so Nick, I, I, I hope after this journey of this conversation that you can find some room in your heart for appreciating butterflies. That was one of my goals of this podcast. So I was disturbed by that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know where you heard that. That was false information. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Slander. I, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so uh, for listeners, uh, we appreciate um, Nick participating in this uh, premiere podcast for America DAPS, and we'll have additional speakers in the, the coming weeks. But again, Nick, thanks for taking the time and having this conversation. And so for folks, I, I'm going to be posting this on various sites, iTunes, and you know some of the things that Nick has done, some of the papers I'm going to be posting on the, the website that we have, America DAPS, and we do a Facebook page too. And that, that will be americadaps.org. Go there and you can find some more information about Nick and the Scudic Institute. And I'll ask Nick for any additional information he thinks he wants to share that if people want to kind of dig a little bit further, then I'll, I'll plug on there. So I'll, I'll give you the last word, Nick. Uh, I just thanks. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, everybody out there. I uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons again. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Nick Fisichelli. That was a great conversation about scenario planning in national parks, and I hope you learned a little bit about that. So we're wrapping up this week's podcast, and I wanted to introduce Tim Watkins, Dr. Tim Watkins. He's a friend of mine and an old colleague of mine, and we thought we'd just wrap up the show by talking about all sort of things adaptation. Tim, do you really you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Hey, Doug. It's good to be on the phone with you. Yeah, my name is Tim Watkins. And I work for the National Park Service, part of the Climate Change Response Program. And in that, I do a lot of stuff around coordinating education and science education in particular that's related to climate change and climate change communication issues. And it's pretty nice to be on kind of a cutting edge of the number one topic that's affecting a lot of our society and our economy these days. So it's uh, it's a good good place to be. You, you mentioned cutting edge. And so I'm curious, and you're walking around on the street streets, do you feel like anyone has a clue what climate change adaptation is about? <laughs> well, that is the tricky part, isn't it? Probably not as much as I think that they really should, but I bet that if you started asking people about climate change adaptation, it would occur to them in their everyday vernacular 
language and their thinking a lot more than we might think. Because I think basically we all kind of walk around thinking about how to make our lives better or how to solve the problems that we see around us or that we experience. And if you just start talking to people about things like, you know, what are you going to do about, you know, increased rainfall or rising oceans or these heat waves that are coming more and more and more often, I think people kind of will start to talk about, you know, I, I need to do this or I need to do that. Or I'm excited that my city or my town is doing these different things in order to make things better or, or frankly, to make a buck. You know, I am encouraged because I think the issue of adaptation is that once the public kind of figures out what's going on, it's an issue to rally around more so than I think the climate change mitigation side, which is, you know, the carbon emission side of it. It's like we're adapting. We're all kind of coming together. And so I hope once society really kind of picks it up that it's something rally around versus like, okay, we need to change our light bulb or we need to drive a more fuel efficient car, but it's it's this rallying point. And so I, I don't know if that's sort of a naive hope, but I'm hoping over the next 5, 10, 20 years, that adaptation is something the public is more likely to rally around. No, I think that's very true. Maybe not necessarily more than mitigation, but certainly as much as mitigation, in my opinion. Because I think both of them, you know, thinking about how to reduce your carbon footprint or make money by reducing climate change or how to adapt to ongoing climate change, it's really about being creative and innovative. And that's really something that a lot of people identify with as being an attribute of being an American, right? Is like, oh, we go out and we do things and we come up with novel things and we do, you know, we, we do great things. We find solutions to problems. That's really something that people feel defines us as a society. And it's kind of nice to think about that today on July 4th. And, and, and so absolutely, you know, thinking about how to make your world better in response to ongoing climate change is, is very much of a, an opportunity for innovation and leadership and making the world a better place. So I, I'm hopeful like you are, Doug. I think uh, people are going to start doing and talking and acting along these lines quite a bit more than they, they have been yet so far. Well, adaptation, next thing you know, there's going to be a movie about it. I was very encouraged to see that this week. I haven't seen it yet, but HBO just came out with this documentary, How to Let Go of the World and love all the things climate can't change. And so is my understanding, and from the pieces that I've seen, you know, there is more of an emphasis on the adaptation side than it just being that purely mitigation or climate change impact kind of movie. And, and this podcast, this is the uh, premier podcast of America Daps. We're talking about adaptation. And so maybe there's a broader pivot going on about having this conversation about adaptation. And I think you picked a nice uh, a, a nice title for this podcast, right? America Adapts, because it, it is. It's America. We're doing it. We are on day one of a multi-day journey. Now, you know, we're not going to chat much here. That You know, I'm, I'm hoping to have a longer conversation with you in the future. But anything kind of catch your eye in the last week or two on climate change or are there any great websites you would recommend to listeners that for whatever reason i know you do these short videos with the national park service i don't know if you want to kind of share where people can find those or what those are all about yeah i haven't made any in a in a little bit but they're good and uh they're more about the science of climate change but they're really good for giving you some background on on what climate change is how it's happening and how it's affecting these places that we all love so much probably the best place to find them is just go to nps.gov slash climate change so that's nationalparkservice.gov slash climate change and you'll see them in the photos and multimedia section of that website you could also look up national park service climate change on youtube and you'll find them there. In terms of websites, you know, for adaptation, there's really nothing that beats Cake or Cake X. 
cakes.org. Yep. CAKE stands for Climate Adaptation Knowledge Exchange. It's a really nice site that talks about adaptation case studies and what is going on with adaptation and how people are doing it. Brought Put together by an organization called EcoAdapt. I recommend that pretty highly for your listeners. Okay, I agree. I go there frequently. Um, EcoAdapt has been doing some really exciting work on adaptations. Tim, I, I don't know if you had any requests for a future podcast guest, who would you recommend that I try to get? Oh, wow. Hmm. Anyone. Come on. Just challenge me. I, I'm going to go for it. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, Al Gore. Let, let's try something big here. Well, you got me, you know, so that's okay. <laughs> we, you know what you should do is you should get Hillary Clinton. Oh, okay. All right. Before she becomes president. Might be a little bit easier. Yeah. I think when she, uh, if she becomes president, she'll have a bit more on her mind to deal with. Wait, wait, you've got, I've got a brainstorm. How about I host a debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and talk about not just climate change, but climate change adaptation, because I'm sure both candidates have a lot to say about the issue. <laughs> there you go. I will listen in carefully to that. All right. That would do wonders for uh, viewership. Okay. I get it. It's a great idea. Well, thank you, Tim, for joining me today. And we will be back next time on America Daps.